I want to share with all our listeners that we've launched a Facebook group. Starting today, you can find us on Facebook under Deep Dish on Global Affairs. This is a public group, so please join in. We'll post new episodes and relevant articles, but it also can be a place for you to ask questions, give feedback, and suggest guests and topics to us. So please check us out, Facebook group, Deep Dish on Global Affairs. This is Deep Dish on Global Affairs, going beyond the headlines on critical global issues. I'm Brian Hansen, and today we're discussing the complex Rohingya conflict in Myanmar uh, to talk about who the Rohingya are, why they are fleeing from their homes, and how to understand uh, this conflict. Today joining me is Azim Ibrahim, a senior fellow at the Center for Global Policy and also the author of the book, The Rohingyas, Inside Myanmar's Hidden Genocide. Welcome, Azim. It's good to have you here. Great to be here with you. Now, like I said, in recent weeks, this longstanding human rights uh, issue in Western Myanmar has erupted once again um, with the Rohingya. Let's start with just uh, just the basics of who are the Rohingya and, and what is the background behind this? Yeah. Well, the Rohingya have been described by the United Nations as the most persecuted minority in the world. Over the last half century, they have faced wave after wave of violence. But the most recent wave that we're seeing that started just a few weeks ago is probably the worst that we've actually encountered. Uh, the history of this persecution goes back to the Second World War, when the Japanese invaded what was at that time British Burma. It was a British colony. The minority Rohingya population stayed loyal to their British colonial masters, whereas the majority Buddhist population decided to side with the Japanese invaders, believing that the Japanese would be victorious and this would lead to swifter independence. So after the British were victorious, you know, the country became independent in 1948. There was bad blood between the two people. But despite that, there was relative calm, there was relative peace up until 1962 when there was a coup by the military leader, General Ne Win. Uh, he came to power and he tried to implement what he called the Burmese Road to Socialism, which is a communist manifesto. And this proved to be a complete economic disaster. So he did what essentially a lot of military dictators do in that situation, is he tried to find a scapegoat to blame for all the ills of society. And the Rohingya minority were the minority of choice for this blame. Uh, because they look different, they have different features, they have different skin colour, they have a different language, uh, they have a different religion. And so they were the minority of choice to be selected for this for this blame as seen as interlopers from abroad. And uh, General Nevin at the same time, he did what a lot of, we, we see a lot of in the, in the Middle East, for example, when things start going wrong, is that uh, the uh, leaders don the cloak of religiosity. And he did the same thing. He became much more overtly Buddhist in his character. He started funding monasteries and extreme clergy and so on. And then he essentially started to push the narrative that only Buddhists can be loyal citizens citizens of Burma and everybody else is, is, is disloyal. A number of laws were subsequently passed in, in 1974, the Nationality Act, then uh, followed by the 1982 Citizenship Act, which, they, which stripped all the Rohingya of their citizenship, made them stateless people. And in fact, a recent Harvard study has indicated that, and this is before the current crisis, that one in seven stateless people around the globe are of Rohingya origin. Um, so a vast, a vast number. But the animosity of the, between the Rohingya and the extreme Buddhists goes back quite a long, a long way. Uh, they're seen 
uh, as interlopers being illegal uh, citizens, uh, being illegal um, uh, immigrants from Bangladesh, which is patently false. That does not stand up to historical scrutiny. But the narrative has hardened so much within the psyche of the average Burmese that people accept it as, as, as being fact now. And why is it that they're seen as such a as such a threat? What is that narrative of their danger? They're not loyal to the state, but do they control resources? Are they on land that people are are interested in? Kind of why are they such a fixture of this concern? Well, they don't certainly control any resources. They're amongst the poorest of the poor that you'll ever come across. Uh, they literally all of them are either fishermen or farmers or, or manual laborers. Even, even when I visited the camps, you know, I hardly found anybody with a, a basic education. I remember specifically, in fact, that there was a lady, a Rohingya lady, that was killed, and uh, it was big news even in the Rohingya community. And the reason why is because she had a college education, and there's hardly anybody amongst them with uh, that kind of level of education. Uh, so so they don't certainly control any resources, they don't have any power. Uh, I, th- I think what's happened over the decades is that a narrative has hardened against this minority, that they're all illegal interlopers from Bangladesh, they're all foreigners, they've come into this country, they're trying to change and dilute Burmese identity, they're, they, they are a threat to Buddhist identity. And uh, one of the questions one gets asked quite often is that, well, look, Buddhists, surely Buddhists can't be, you know, involved in this kind of behavior. After all, Buddhists are the most peaceful people you come across. You know, even when you have bad thoughts, you have to cleanse yourself. But I think they're not the Buddhism, they don't follow the Buddhism that you and I may be familiar with in the West, you know, the Buddhism of the Dalai Lama, for example. They don't recognize the Dalai Lama. They follow a brand of Buddhism called Theravada Buddhism, which is quite militant in its nature. They actually believe that all other ideologies have to be kept in check and have to be suppressed in order for Buddhism to thrive. They do not believe in multi-religious dialogue in in any shape. Um, They believe that all other uh, religious identities have to be really suppressed quite significantly. So, And they also believe in reincarnation, like all Buddhists, and they believe that uh, many of the Rohingya have actually been reincarnated from snakes and insects. So when you do actually persecute them or, or kill them, you're not actually killing complete human beings, you're actually just killing vermin. It's a very powerful set of ideas. What led to the recent surge of, of violence and mobilization of people? The recent surge of violence uh, started on the 25th of August and uh, the military of Myanmar said that they were reacting to a a militant attack by a group that calls itself the Arakan Rohingya Salvation Army. Now this is a little known entity, a relatively new entity, uh, which undertook an attack on the 25th of August that left a dozen security officials dead. And in response, the military of Myanmar reacted what I think is interpreted as hugely disproportionately and overwhel- with overwhelming force. You know, within a matter of weeks, they had expelled hundreds of thousands of Rohingya over the border into Bangladesh. And we've seen extensive evidence uh, of villages being burnt in their entirety. Uh, Human Rights Watch has obtained satellite imagery which shows that 90% of homes in the Mongol district, for example, have been completely burnt to the ground. And uh, I actually wrote a piece in Newsweek magazine last year saying that the military is actually preparing for a massive offensive against Rohingya. They were in full preparation. A number of, of my sources on the ground in Myanmar had informed me of this. And I believe that the most recent violence uh, is, uh, is, was simply a trigger. 
the, the militant attacks was, was the kind of excuse that the military needed to simply clamp down on the Rohingya and try to expel them and, and cleanse their land of the Rohingya. In fact, the military chief, General Minong Ling, he, uh, he said on record just about a week ago on his Facebook page that... Uh, uh, you know, this is unfinished business from 1942 to remove the illegal Bengalis from our country. Uh, so t- to me, I think, and to most observers, you know, this is essentially what they're trying to do. They're trying to ethnically cleanse their country in its entirety of uh, of all the Rohingya. And so far, they, you know, they're, they're, they're succeeding unabated. And as I understand it, even senior UN officials have called this a textbook case of ethnic cleansing. And... So as you see it, the goal is really to remove this group of people from the territory of Myanmar entirely. Uh, They're headed into Bangladesh in large numbers. I understand there are about 400,000 already, and there have been an additional 400,000 that have come in recently. What is life like? What what greets them when they cross the border and end up in Bangladesh? Well, I visited those camps in Bangladesh that were housing the 400,000 Rohingya refugees before the current crisis. And I can tell you unequivocally, those are some of the most grim conditions I've ever, I've ever seen. And I have visited refugee camps all over the world. The conditions in the camp are actually very, are, are not much different from the conditions in the camps in Myanmar and those are essentially concentration camps the only difference is that there's there's no violence there's no you know there's little chance of you being killed by an extreme Buddhist or a a military official but the conditions there are extremely grim and uh, over the last few weeks you've seen the most recent number I think is 410,000 more and that's about 18,000 a day 1,000 people an hour that are literally coming with absolutely nothing and uh, the government of Bangladesh is, is really struggling now to take those, those kinds of numbers in. They have announced you know, a massive house building programme. They said that they will build 14,000 shelters, uh, 8,500 uh, latrines and uh, on 2,000 acres of land and they, and they intend to do this in the next 10 days. Uh, that seems highly ambitious and highly unrealistic but the conditions from what I'm hearing from people in the camps is that people are now literally starving they are now starving. There's just not enough resources to actually go around. And uh, they're also suffering from disease, cholera, diarrhea, dehydration. And we also have to remember that out of those 400,000, 260,000 are actually children. You know, in some estimates, say up to 60%. And these are all UN figures. So, And many of these children are arriving without you know parents or guardians or anything uh, because they've been killed. And uh, this is... Uh, an explicit and organised systematic campaign by the Myanmar government to remove all of these people because not only have they burnt their villages to make sure they don't come back they have nothing to come back to but at the same time we have reports that they are mining the border so to make sure that once the refugees are over the border they, they, they can't actually come back so as as you said you know the UN Secretary General said that there is no better way to describe this and the you know the lead the UN humanitarian commissioner did say that look this is textbook ethnic cleansing and what has the international response been other than to call this out as ethnic ethnic cleansing have there been any attempts to stop the this process um, or once the people cross the border to be able to assist them on that side there's been the international response has been extremely weak the UN issued a statement you know, outside the general, outside the Secretary General, the UN Security Council issued a statement saying that they're deeply concerned, and that is about as far as it, 
as it went, and that in diplomatic language is, is, is quite weak. I think there's a number of reasons why we've seen quite a weak response from the international community. Uh, first of all, I think they're quite... Uh, no, nobody wants to upset the the balance, the political balance in Myanmar. You know, this the, Myanmar has emerged from a dictatorship, military dictatorship, after many, many decades, and it's now moving and uh, making a slow transition into democracy, an imperfect transition, but a very, very slow one, nevertheless. And nobody wants to upset that balance. Nobody wants it to go back to a military dictatorship. And secondly, you know, I believe that there's no strategic reason for anybody to actually get involved. You know, Western powers have no interest in that part of the world at all. Um, uh, you know, President Obama visited Myanmar, I believe, in 2012. And, uh, for, you know, for any country to get a visit from the President of the United States is a, is a very big deal. And one of the reasons President Obama visited is that as Myanmar opens up and as it becomes more democratic and, and more free, they're deeply concerned it's going to fall under the sphere of influence of China. The whole of Southeast Asia is actually being reconfigured to meet the Chinese demand for insatiable China's insatiable demand for resources. You know, they're the biggest investor in that part of the that part of the world, not just in Myanmar, but essentially almost every country. And uh, if uh, China gets access to Myanmar, they'll have access to the Bay of Bengal, the Indian Ocean, giving them. Uh, and this will reconfigure the strategic calculus in that region. So when there's large, when there's kind of those kind of geopolitical calculations and machinations going on, and you insert the, uh, this persecuted minority who nobody knows about and nobody really cares, it uh, it doesn't really fit into that kind of narrative. So it's interesting the emphasis that you just put on on the role of China in the region. And one of the frequent criticisms of China's rising role in the world is that uh, the Chinese don't have as strong of a human rights agenda. Typically, it's a set of commercial deals. You decide what to do inside your own, your own borders. Um, is what we see happening in this tragic situation do you think that there are likely to be future patterns in other parts of the world where there are these kinds of issues where China's playing a bigger role and, and Western powers may be decreasing in the in their uh, in the role that they're playing? Is is this something we may see more of? I think there's no doubt this is this is now something that we will certainly see a lot more of. Uh, U.S. leadership around the world is as seen as as having been quite dim diminished particularly with the new administration here in the US saying that they don't they won't put a, a, that same kind of emphasis on human rights uh, violations as, as previous administrations did so that certainly is music to ears to many world authoritarian leaders and uh, you know China has interest in that region and they're also fully aware that the US has very little interest in human rights in the current administration and, and they're simply not going to to step in so it's a kind of green light to many many authoritarian leaders to go on with the kind of job that they've always wanted to execute. One of the things about Myanmar that people know in this country is that many are familiar with Aung San Suu Kyi, who is the state councillor currently, so she's got a governmental role. But most people know her because she was a Nobel laureate for peace, for her work toward, um, toward independence. She is... Um, she has been exposed to a great deal of criticism, first for not speaking out about the crisis, and then recently she did make a speech about the crisis, but that response was also criticized. 
So what role has she played? What has she said? And and why do you think she has taken the position she has? Well, Aung San Suu Kyi has simply evolved from being a peace campaigner to now she is now a full-time politician. As she has simply made a political calculation that the Rohingya issue is simply not worth utilising any political capital over. Uh, and at the same time alienating the military and the Buddhist the, the Buddhist clergy who wield considerable influence in that country. So she simply made that calculation, you know, um, uh, that her life's work, you know, she has went through immense sacrifice and immense struggle to get to where she is. You know, she spent a number of decades under house arrest and, uh, you know, her husband died when she was under house arrest. She couldn't see him. And now she is in the position that she's in and she's simply not willing to give that up. You know, for for the for this minority for this minority group that's being abused, uh, but she's actually gone a little bit further than that, and it's it's been hugely disappointing to some of her supporters. You know, people like myself who did who did support her extensively, is that now she is essentially providing cover for the military action. You know, she has said that there is no ethnic cleansing going on in the country. Uh, this is an iceberg of misinformation. Uh, and this is all fake news, and uh, and her, you know, and she's also said on previous occasions that look, both sides are equally to blame, the Buddhist and the Rohingya, and that to me is the is the equivalence of saying, oh look, both sides were to blame in the Holocaust, both the Jews and the Nazis were equally to blame, or both the blacks and the whites were to blame for apartheid in South Africa, you know, most people would see that as moral bankruptcy, uh, if nothing else, but she gave a speech yesterday which received a lot of attention. And that speech was mainly aimed at the international audience. It was given in English, and I was told that even in some uh, Burmese channels, it wasn't even translated. So it was aimed specifically at the international audience. And uh, I, I found that speech to be quite strange in many respects. Uh, first of all, she was saying that, you know, uh, she said that we have no idea why all these Rohingya are leaving. And actually, first of all, she did not use the term Rohingya. She has never used that term Rohingya. She uses the term, uh, she uses, she says the term Muslims in Rakhine. So even when she was pressed by the BBC to use the term Rohingya, she refuses to use it. She said, we have no idea why they're all leaving the country. And, uh, you know, we invite our international partners to come and join us and try to find out why that's the case. Now, I think most people find that quite bizarre because even in Bangladesh, you can see the villages are burning, you know, and there's the testimonials of the people are, 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 are there to see, you know, the, this extensive video footage of it. Even the BBC's Jonathan Head, uh, despite being uh, escorted by government minders, was able to identify and see extreme Buddhists burning down villages uh, with petrol cans and the police watching on and encouraging them and what you know I'm uh, doing nothing even he managed to see that and get on video so this idea that we have no idea why they're actually leaving which just struck I think most people as quite bizarre and secondly she said we would invite the international community to come and join us and and help us to get to the bottom of this and the UN actually passed a resolution in March uh, to send a three-person mission to Myanmar to investigate um, uh, the situation in the Rakhine district and she she went on record saying that this isn't the kind of th thing that we need we will not give them visas we will not let them into the country and so on the one hand she's saying you know she's not permitting any outsiders to come and investigate on the other hand she's saying look we actually welcome it um, so there was, there was serious contradictions between what she's saying and uh, what her actually beh behaviour is and I think most people would find that that she's now become just a shield for the military action for the military that's undertaking the kind of ethnic cleansing that we're seeing. 
And what does this tell us about Myanmar as a country and, and governance? A lot of people saw hope in her that this was a movement to greater openness and democratization. But you just characterized her as basically um, using her moral authority uh, to whitewash the military government and really horrific sets of sets of actions. Um, was the hope misplaced in that uh, she could be a transformative political figure? Well, the reality is is that she doesn't have a lot of control over the military. You know, the, despite there being elections, the military still wield considerable power. For example, they still control a quarter of all the seats in parliament. They still control the major ministries, foreign affairs, borders, interior ministry. So she doesn't have a lot of power uh, to actually inf- or influence over the military. But at the same time, she is the leader of the, mo- the largest political party that won the elections overwhelmingly. She has a massive support base. Uh, you know, beyond anything that the the military could hope for in terms of the general populace, she's also the most famous citizens of citizen of Myanmar. She's a Nobel laureate. She's um, uh, the moral conscience of that country. And for her to say nothing at all, and when such human rights abuses are going on in your country, I think most people would find that quite distasteful. Um, uh, uh, and uh, you know, she's lost her uh, moral authority in many respects for the transition that she's made. She's willing to. Uh, she's willing to see such abuses go on just to protect her own her own position. So the situation currently is incredibly tragic um, for you know, hun- literally hundreds of thousands of people. What is the most hopeful scenario that you can see for how this might play out? Well, I, I actually spoke to uh, a couple of people who are at the UN at the moment who are trying to lobby for much more a stronger kind of intervention and uh, essentially both of them told me off the record that the UN uh, you know the highest level they, they spoke to some of the UN ambassadors said that look there's going to be no intervention whatsoever we simply have to let this play out and let the ethnic cleansing uh, play out and then we'll try to do what we can for the refugees you know I believe on the current trajectory within a, a month or two certainly before the end of the year we could we'll probably see then the ethnic cleansing of the entire population of the Rohingya from Myanmar um, uh, and this is something that the Myanmar authorities have always always desired and uh, I think the most we could probably hope for is that they're given you know the kind of resources and the you know the kind of the needs are met on the other side of the border because I think the probability of them ever going back to Myanmar is very slim. One of the things Aung San Suu Kyi said yesterday in her speech is that, you know, we will have we have a mechanism by which to welcome all those refugees back if they can prove they're actually from Rakhine and if they can prove that they're they actually left. And I had a look at the at the the mandate that she was referring to was from nineteen ninety three. And for you to actually meet that requirement as a refugee is it's, it's impossible. You know, you have to prove where you cross the border from. You have to show the paperwork where you cross the border from with from the Bangladeshi authorities. Then you have to prove where you actually lived in Myanmar. And then you also have to demonstrate with your papers. And these people literally left with nothing. They left with nothing. They were fleeing, you know, murderous, murderous squads. And for them to, you know, none of them got their passport stamped when they crossed the border. They didn't have anything with them. So these this mechanism has been set up and what she's trying to do is, is essentially trying to pacify the international community that we have these 
we have these mechanisms in place to welcome refugees back where in reality I think almost everybody knows that there will be no going back at all. This is a, a systematic campaign of ethnic cleansing and so far it's succeeding. And what's the longer term future uh, for these people in Bangladesh? Are they seen in sympathetic terms by the local population? Obviously, it's a huge number of people to absorb, and the, and the demands on society and resources uh, are, are going to be very, very difficult. But um, are they seen sympathetically inside of Bangladesh? They're, they're being seen sympathetically at the moment because you know people are aware that these people are um, uh, the Rohingya are fleeing this persecution and, uh, and murder so they are welping, welcoming them but how long that will last is, is difficult to say but it's also interesting because the Prime Minister of Bangladesh Sheikh Hasina has uh, issued very explicit and clear edicts in which she said that uh, you know the Rohingya cannot leave the Rohingya refugees this, they cannot leave those camps that are being set up for them and it's actually she also said it's, pr- it's forbidden for any Bangladeshi to put any of the Rohingya into a vehicle they cannot ride in any vehicles or car, truck, ambulance, nothing. They cannot get into a vehicle because the 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 thinking is is that they simply want to keep the Rohingya confined to these camps. They don't want them to melt into the local population where they will just disappear. She wants to hold them in the camps in the hope that you know some sort of deal may be struck so they can be set back, sent back. But that seems unlikely. So I think what we're going to see is that we have this huge population of Rohingya on the border of Man- uh, Bangladesh and Myanmar, confined to these massive camps, and uh, you know, where they won't they won't have an identity, they won't have access to jobs, education, you know, anything of that kind of nature. So it seems that their suffering will continue as it was within Myanmar. It will simply continue over the border, being a stateless and being identity identityless people. So, given this incredibly bleak situation, and and with really. Uh, both in the short term and the longer term, um, listeners to this podcast are they are the things that you would encourage individuals to to do in this situation? Well, I I think you know first of all the most important thing, uh, as in all of these situations, is to educate ourselves to actually what's happening you know on the ground, and uh, you know and we have to try to get to the bottom of the facts, and obviously um, organizations like yourself are are, are trying to do that. But at the same time, I think it's also important that we try to support some of those refugees on those on those camps, and, th- and there's a number of excellent organisations and charities that are that are operating on the ground there, including the Red Cross, the Red Crescent, uh, its a sister organisation. So I think it's important that we try to support them. But I think over the long term, what I think what I certainly hope is that, uh, as as is the case in many of these situations, whether it's uh, Rwanda, Darfur or Bosnia is that many years later sometimes decades later is when the international community actually has the courage and has the ability to say well look we need to set up some sort of commission, war crimes tribunals or investigations to get to the bottom of who was responsible for this massive humanitarian disaster and bring those people to justice now we've seen that in Bosnia for example even in Rwanda very effectively done many many years later I certainly hope that uh, those people on the ground, they are people on the ground, you know, agencies and human rights organisations that are collecting evidence as we speak, you know, from the refugees in terms of who was perpetuating the violence under what circumstances it happened so that many years from now when such tribunals are set up, we can bring those people who, 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 who were the architects of this, bring them to justice. 
Well, thank you very much, uh, Azim, for joining us to discuss the situation, really the, the, the very, very tragic uh, situation of the Rohingya and the violence in Myanmar. I think you've done a great deal to help us understand this situation better, so I appreciate you taking the time to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Today, we're going to add a new element to our Deep Dish on Global Affairs podcast. And I would like to bring into the studio uh, our producer, Evan, for a quick post-interview segment. Hi, Evan. Welcome. Hi, Brian. It's good to be on microphone. So what I want to do with this segment is is just reflect on what we learned today. And, And for you, what was one of the biggest takeaways from this episode? So I'd been following the Rohingya news like most people, but I kind of had a general ignorance in my mind about what this, what the context was for all of this. And his sort of introduction to his uh, conversation with you was the most educational part for me. That's where I learned that the Rohingya prosecution has its roots actually in British colonization uh, and then a subsequent Japanese invasion, and that I was the allegiance to those two different groups that started this whole split. And then later was kind of deepened by religious scapegoating. All of that history was totally unknown to me. All I knew was that there was a prosecuted people that were being attacked by ethnic cleansing at the moment. What about you? What did you learn today? For me, I learned, like you, a great deal about a specific case and a a really incredibly tragic uh, situation in the world. But I also reflected on the on some of the big foreign policy issues and and global issues under debate, and, and particularly what is the role that human rights and human rights concerns are going to play in the world? Um, you know, we've, we've seen it in this show in a couple different ways. Of course, in the United States, there's a great deal of discussion about U.S. foreign policy, and, and President Trump has de-emphasized uh, the role of human rights and the, the role of the U.S. as being an advocate for uh, the human rights agenda, um, you know, very clearly in, in Saudi Arabia, but um, more generally. That combined with a very interesting part of the story, which is China's influence in this Mm -hmm. part of the world, right? Mm -hmm. And China historically has, you know, the basic deal has been we don't interfere with other countries' internal affairs. You don't interfere with us, we won't interfere with you, right? right? But I think one of the things that, that today's episode really brought to the fore for me was just how much is at stake in these debates and discussions? And does the international community, does the United States, and does the international community really want to walk away from having a sense of responsibility for a powerless group of people, mm-hmm. you know, hundreds of thousands, over a million people yeah. um, who are, are treated in this way? And that what we decide, and frankly, what the U.S. decides, mm-hmm is going to have enormous consequences. Now, it's not the U.S. that's going to solve all these problems. We know there are situations in Rwanda and other places Mm -hmm. where we knew things were happening that we didn't intervene. But there is a huge amount at stake for people in how this issue plays out in the U.S. and in global politics. Thanks, uh, Evan, for uh, joining in this post-interview conversation. Yeah, my pleasure, Brian. And thank you for tuning in to this episode of Deep Dish on Global Affairs. Please note that the opinions you heard today are those of the people who expressed them and not the institutional positions of the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. If you like this episode, 
please subscribe to Deep Dish on Global Affairs on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Deep Dish on Global Affairs is produced by Evan Fazio. Our research associate is Alex Hitch. I'm Brian Hansen, and we'll be back soon for another slice of Deep Dish. I want to share with all our listeners that we've launched a Facebook group. Starting today, you can find us on Facebook under Deep Dish on Global Affairs. This is a public group, so please join in. We'll post new episodes and relevant articles, but it also can be a place for you to ask questions, give feedback, and suggest guests and topics to us. So please check us out, Facebook group, Deep Dish on Global Affairs.